Uh, good morning, Lighthouse. Good morning. I guess the rest of you cheerings are here are stuck with me. Still time to run. <laughs> it uh, no, it, uh, it's good to see some visitors in here this morning too. You know, we uh, we're absolutely blessed that you uh, uh, you chose to join us this morning. You could have been anywhere else in the world, and you chose to spend it with us. Uh, um, we're just absolutely stoked that you're here. All right, well, let's get to it. Uh, um, turning your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. <coughs> now, this passage of Scripture before us today it's known as the Olivet Discourse. And uh, this sermon, which was delivered by Jesus, it's also recorded in a couple other places in the Bible. You get uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and also in Luke chapter 21. Now, in this sermon, Jesus talks about the end of time and the events which surround the end of the world. And this passage, um, no matter which book you go to, this passage is one of the most difficult to interpret in the New Testament, I think. And because of this fact, I mean, through history, we've seen various false teachings about the end times and the second coming of Christ, and even about salvation come to light. So you want to take your time, and we want to take our time uh, as much as possible as we move through these verses this morning, because we want to get a correct understanding of what the Lord Jesus is trying to teach us. And in order to understand this prophecy, we need to keep a few truths in mind before we ever dive off into here. First, as we read this passage, we'll notice that the church or the rapture is never mentioned. And you've got to ask yourself why. Well, it doesn't mention these things because this passage wasn't written to the church. It was written to the nation of Israel. And this is primarily a Jewish prophecy. If you get these two things wrong, you rabbit trail in ways that you don't, uh, you don't even want to go down and it's, it's hard to recover. But even though this is a, 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 a prophecy primarily written to the nation of Israel, there are still a ton of truths that we can glean from these verses. Second, this prophecy, it covers a tremendous expanse of time. Over 2,000 years of human history are in view here. And these verses contain prophecies that have been partially fulfilled and that will be completely fulfilled in the future. So it, it, as you read this and as you study this, you're looking backwards and forwards at the same time. And third, as with any prophetic passage of Scripture, you got to move cautiously. And, with the, and, and you got to move with the knowledge that absolutely no one has all the answers. See, there's no Bible scholar that has ever been able to solve all the theological riddles that are here within this Olivet Discourse. So we, gotta, we, we have to approach these verses um, with a humble heart and knowing that none of us knows it all. With those thoughts in mind, let's listen in on this conversation between Jesus and His disciples as He, as he teaches them about the events that will characterize the end of time. 
And I trust what the Lord says here is going to be a challenge to help us as we study this text together. So I'd like to preach today on the, the, the beginning of the end, and I want you to see within the sermon that there's a strange prediction, that there's a startling panorama, and that there's a sobering promise. So let's look at these truths and think about the beginning of the end. The first thing I wanted you to see is, is that there's a strange prediction. Look at uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, And as he, uh, speaking about Jesus, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So let's look at the temple and its design first off. Verse 1 says, as, as Jesus went out of the temple, one, is, one of his disciples says to him, Master, see what manner of stones and buildings are here. So Jesus is leaving the temple. As we, as we read through the book of Mark, for the last two chapters, Mark has been showing us Jesus and his, and his encounters with the religious Jews while at the temple. And, and it's been a tense time for Jesus. And it's been a tense time for his disciples. And, and, and his disciples surely have to be baffled by the Lord's words and behavior in the temple. See, they, they, they probably thought that Jesus would try to win the favor of the Jews and the Jewish leaders. But instead, we, we, as we read, we, we, we see that Jesus did everything in his power to expose them as religious phonies. And now, this ragtag group's time uh, in the temple is over, and one of the disciples tries to lighten the mood. See, after all the negativity they've experienced, this disciple wants to say something positive. And, and so he calls the Lord's attention to the temple and its construction and its beauty. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was considered to be one of the, uh, uh, to be among one of the most spectacular wonders in the ancient Roman Empire. See, the original temple was constructed by Solomon, and it was a magnificent building that took seven years and millions of dollars to build. But that temple was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in about 600 B.C. So when the Jews returned to their homeland about 70 years later, they constructed a second temple. And the temple served the Jews for about 500 years. But, but by the time of the New Testament, it had, surf, it had suffered great damage due to the passage of time. So when King Herod assumed the throne of Israel, he wanted to gain favor with the Jews. So he offered to rebuild their temple. And in 18 B.C., they accepted and the work began. <coughs> So by the time of Jesus, this work had been underway some 46 years, according to John chapter 2, verse 20. And this work would continue for another 20 years after. And the temple that Jesus and his men visited, it was just absolutely an amazing, an amazing building. See, it sat on top of Mount Moriah and literally dominated the skyline of the ancient city. 
The Temple Mount covered some one-sixth of the land area of Jerusalem. And the, the temple itself was 172 feet long and 20 stories high. Huge. And, and, and the thing is, it could be seen from many miles away, and it could be seen anywhere in the city. Now, if we go back to our scripture, you'll notice that the disciple who spoke called the Lord's attention to the stones and the buildings. So let's talk about those two descriptions real quick. The stones that made up Herod's temple, they were absolutely enormous. Uh, in fact, somebody could say they were ginormous. Uh, it, uh, they were 40 feet long, 18 feet high, and 15 feet wide. That is a hunk of rock. And the, what makes it even more impressive is they were cut by hand from pure white limestone and fit together so tightly and perfectly that a sheet of paper could not be inserted between the stones. I don't know that with modern equipment we could get that today. Just absolutely amazing. But the doors and the walls and even the floors of the temple were overlaid with pure gold. And there were jewels and ornate carvings, and, and many awe-inspiring sights in there. And it was said that when the sun came up over Jerusalem, you couldn't stand to look at the temple because of the light gleaming from its golden walls. Anything that was not covered with gold was of the purest of white. You know, I just learned uh, um, uh, yesterday that um, not all whites are the same necessarily. And it, and it dawned on me that uh, um, if you uh, if you uh, you think lamb's wool is white till they get in a snowstorm, <laughs> a lamb's acts absolutely gray in a snowstorm. But my wife was uh, not my wife, but my daughter was hunting for wedding dresses, and and she said there's like twenty different kinds of white. I had no idea. I thought white was white, but it uh, the the temple was the purest white, and and it had to have been a sight um, whether. Um, the temple was seen during the day or at night, it had to have been a sight that no one would ever forget. And like every other Jew, this disciple was impressed by the temple. And he was proud that it was, it was part of his nation and his religion. So naturally, he calls the Lord's attention to the building and its wonders. And, and look at verse 2. Because Jesus starts talking about the temple and its destruction. It says in verse 2, it says, And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now remember how big those stones were? Wasn't, uh, wasn't going to be a stone left on top of each other. And as you look at this, the response of Jesus is, is somewhat strange. See, Jesus hears the exclamation of this disciple and he responds by telling him that the temple he loves so dearly is going to eventually be dismantled and destroyed. Now this was literally fulfilled in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus and his army conquered the city. See, Titus ordered his men to preserve the temple, but the building was gutted by a fire set by one of his soldiers. And as a result, the general ordered the temple and the city totally destroyed. The Romans dismantled every stone in the building to get to the gold that melted into the cracks during the fire. Today, just as Jesus said, 
there is not a single stone left from the great temple Herod built. Next, I want you to see a startling panorama here. Let's look at the disciples and their request first. Look at, look at verses 3 and 4. It says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, it's talking about Jesus, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? So, after they've gone out of the, uh, the temple in the city, Jesus led his men up the Mount of Olives. And this, uh, this mountain stood some 150 feet higher than the city below. And it offered a commanding view of the temple and its grounds. And as Jesus sat there on the mountain, he's approached by four of his disciples. Two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and, and John and James, they came to Jesus with a question. And apparently, um, I, I use the word baffled here, but as they heard Jesus make that statement, for lack of a better term, they were freaked out. And they, they, they just couldn't put together what they heard uh, Jesus say about the destruction of the temple. And they want to know what he's talking about. So they come to him here for an explanation. So let's look at the Lord and his revelation. These, they, and and it's, it's interesting that these guys came to Jesus asking the same questions people still ask about the end times. Everyone wants to know when. When is it going to happen? And they want to know what. What are the signs going to be that it's here? You know, the, the old preacher once said, all you got to do to guarantee the good crowd in any service is to announce or advertise that you're going to preach on end times. And the house fills up. People going to come to hear that. But Jesus answers their last questions in these verses. Now, later in the chapter, in another sermon... He's going to answer their first question. But today we want to consider our Lord's response to the questions about what the signs will be as the end time approaches. Now the first thing I want you to see before we get into this is that Jesus warns of potential deception. Look at verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed. In other words, pay attention. Lest any man deceive you. See, Jesus warned his men right from the outset that they needed to be aware or needed to beware of deception. <clears throat> Even the disciples could be drawn away by these things that they might hear and see. And that potential still exists today. And that's why you and I need to be grounded in the Word of God. And we need to be familiar with what the Bible says. And we need to be sure about what we believe and who we believe and why we believe it. And we need to have our doctrine nailed down tight in our hearts so that when the deceptions come, we can be faithful to stand for the Lord. You know, it, uh, it, how do you tell a counterfeit dollar bill? How do the, there's experts at this. They study the real ones over and over and over and over. You know, I had a person tell me one time about studying the Bible. He says, man, I've read them same stories over and over and over and over. I said, you don't see anything new? 
I see something new every time I look at it. But if you don't know what the real thing is, you'll fall for the fake. Now Jesus continues by telling that there's going to be false messiahs on the horizon. Look at verse 6. He says, for many... He, he, says, he says, take heed lest any man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Jesus says here that, that many false Christs would come along and, and draw many away into deception. And you know, by the time of Jesus, several Jews had come along claiming to be the Messiah. There were some living even during the time of Christ, and many more have followed down through the years. You know, look at Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel is talking here. And he says, For before these days rose up Tutus, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. He said, And after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished in all, even as many as obeyed him were dispersed. See, this, ma this, this passage right here mentions two would-be messiahs. One was named Tutus. He claimed, uh, the funny thing is, he claimed that he could part the Jordan River. And he deceived about 400 people and led them to their deaths. Another was Judas the Galilean. And this guy was, an, uh, was a radical anti-Roman revolutionary, and he founded the Zealot movement, movement in Israel. One of the Lord's disciples, Simon the Zealot, was one of his followers. Now, after the death and resurrection of the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus, many more would-be messiahs came uh, to prominence in Israel. One man was, a, uh, was named Simon Bar Kokhba. And history tells us that he started a rebellion that lasted three years and cost thousands of lives in Israel. His revolt single-handedly led to harsh Roman crackdown that left Jerusalem in utter ruins. Others included Moses of Crete. He claimed that, that he could part the Mediterranean Sea and lead his followers across dry land from the island of Crete to Israel. That's a pretty big claim. Many leapt from the cliffs at his command and they were drowned in the sea. In the 1100s, a man named Moses Aldari told his followers to sell all their possessions because the Messiah was coming at Passover in 1127. Passover came and went and his followers were left destitute. In 1666, a man claimed to have heard the voice of God declaring that he was the Son of God. He led his followers to the city of Constantinople and was arrested by the Turkish sultan. The sultan ordered him to either prove that he was the Messiah or be executed. <laughs> this would-be Messiah promptly converted to Islam. In our own era, in our own lifetimes, many so-called messiahs have paraded across the stage of history. you got Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell, Mary Baker Patterson Glover Eddy, founder of Christian Science, Sun, uh, Sun Young Moon, they come to mind. Many can remember Jim Jones, the founder of the People's Temple, and the nearly thousand people he led to commit mass suicide in 1978. And right here in Texas, who can forget David Koresh, 
the founder of the Branch Davidians in the fiery siege on that compound in 1993. See, the point is, as the time approaches, there's going to be more and more people stepping forward claiming to be the Savior of the world. And we've got to be beware that we're not deceived by their slick words and their evil deception. See, the appearance of such people is just merely a sign that the end is approaching. Jesus continued by telling the disciples that there's going to be war. Look at verse 7. He says, and when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, he says, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. Now, you know, our world's been marked by war since the beginning of time. It's the only thing people really have got right. And according to Will Durant, in the 3,421 years of recorded history, there have been only 268 years of peace. And that figure doesn't take into account the wars that were not recorded. The history of our world is a history of war. I remember when, uh, when my wife Susan read through the Bible for the first time, she goes, my gosh, that's a bloody book. She goes, everybody's fighting everybody. And I said, yeah, it's cool, ain't it? <laughs> now, Jesus said that wars and rumors of wars would increase as the end of time approaches. You know, we're, we're seeing that prove true in our day. In fact, this very thing sparked conversation this week with the war in Israel. You know, wars ravage our planet. Even as man claims to be climbing ever higher on the ladder of intelligence and compassion and peace. But Jesus cautioned us against getting caught up in the wars we see raging around us. You know, when the United States invaded Iraq, many believed it was the end of time. When the Russian-Ukraine war uh, began, many believed it was the, the end of time, or it could, it, it could happen. You know, when Hamas attacked Israel this last week, um, it, people come up and go, is this going to lead to World War III? Is, this, uh, is somebody going to push the button and there are going to be uh, missiles flying and nobody's going to survive? And I said, well, it could happen, but I don't think it's going to go that way. And, and as you look at the Internet, it was flooded, flooded with modern-day prophets spouting about how this will be the start of uh, World War III and the end. But look back at verse 7. Jesus tells his disciples there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Jesus said, these things must needs be. That is, God's using this terrible tragedy of war to shape the world for the coming of His Son. He's using this terrible tragedy of war to settle accounts that have been going in that that family feud that's been going on for, uh, what, four or five thousand years now? There's, there's things that have to happen. There's prophecy that has to be fulfilled. And there's things that have to, and he's moving things around. When we take and we look at, at, at um, uh, people getting mad and having hissy fits and firing missiles at each other, we, we need to understand to a certain extent that God's still into control and that he's just moving the chess pieces around. Again, it's merely a sovereign God preparing the world for the appearance of His Son. 
But you know, the thing is, when we take and we hear the, the saber rattling of, of Iran and Iraq and Russia and China and North Korea, you know, and, and, and we realize that there's, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles pointed that can do all this and that, it tends to make us a little afraid if we allow it. And, 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 and it, we always start thinking about the end of time. And, but the thing about it is, all of these things are just a part of living in this world. And see, as the end approaches, we're going to see an increase in this kind of activity. And we can't allow this uh, and these things to disturb us. Look at the last part of verse 8. He tells us that there's going to be an increase in earthquakes. It says in, in, uh, in verse 8, it says, and there shall be earthquakes in divers places or various places. <clears throat> now, you know, the world is no stranger to earthquakes. Scientists tell us that, that uh, more than 13 million people have died in earthquakes over the last 4,000 years. I don't know how they know that, but uh, that's what they tell us anyway. It was on Google, so it must be true. And, you know, we saw with our own eyes um, back in 2003 what an earthquake can do um, when there was a there was a powerful earthquake under the Pacific Ocean in the December of 2003, and that earthquake spawned a tsunami that killed 300,000 people. In 1811 and 12, there was a series of earthquakes just to the north of us in Arkansas that rearranged the landscape of the area and caused rivers to change their courses and filled the skies with dirt and ash, and it sparked a ton of fires. In 1980, I remember this one because it was right before I got out of high school, and it, there was a, a volcano now named Mount St. Helens, and it was in Washington State, and it erupted. And this eruption was triggered by a violent earthquake that caused a rock slide comprised of one-half cubic mile of rock. And as the summit and north slope of what the, uh, the volcano slid down her sides, pressure was released out of this volcano, and um, uh, uh, super hot liquid water immediately flashed to steam. And the northward directed steam explosion released energy equivalent to 20 million tons of TNT. And it toppled 150 square miles of forest in six minutes. In Spirit Lake, north of the volcano, an enormous water wave initiated by uh, by one-eighth cubic mile of rock slide debris it stripped trees from slopes as high as 850 foot above the pre-eruption water level. We're talking major power. The total energy output on May 18th was equivalent to 400 million tons of dynamite or approximately 20,000 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. And the explosion showered towns as far as away as 250 miles of volcanic ash. And we say, well, that's, uh, that's, yeah, and it was horrendous. I remember it. But, you know, just this last week, two earthquakes, one measuring 6.3, um, struck in Afghanistan. It flattened towns and it killed an estimated 3,000 people. And news reports that say of those two, 90% of those killed were women and children. From October 8th to the 14th, what was uh, yesterday? The 14th, right? Of this year, Alaska has experienced 10 earthquakes, ranging from magnitude 3.3 to 4.4. 4. 
They've been centered around Fairbanks, Juneau, and Unalaska. See, the point is that earthquakes are increasing in their frequency. And they're increasing in their intensity. And they're going to do so as the end of time approaches. But Jesus says, look, we shouldn't be disturbed by such activity because Jesus said it was going to be this way. Let's continue on. Look back at verse 8. Jesus said there's going to be famines. It it says in verse 8, and there shall be famines and troubles. Now, as of May 26, 2023, according to World Vision, 828 million people, roughly 10% of the global population, will go to bed hungry. Every 3.6 seconds, someone dies of starvation. Every year, 15 million children die of starvation and of hunger-related illness. 1.3 billion people live on less than $1 of income per day. Another 3 billion have, uh, have survived on less than $3 per day. Point is, famines devastate the poor nations of the world, Afghanistan being uh, the, the number one in the world right now. The thing, and, and what we need to remember, we are just one bad harvest away from starvation here in America. See, famine are going to increase as the end nears. You know, a 2023 report reveals that 783 million faced hunger in 2022 with a mid-range of about 735. That represented an increase of 122 million people as compared to 2019, which was just before the COVID-19 pandemic. The numbers have increased to over 800 million through the halfway point of this year, and they're expected to continue rising. Famine's a real thing. We're blessed. We, uh, you know, it, uh, um, not many of us have gone without a meal in a long time. But he says there's going to be famines and there's going to be troubles. And he says, he says there's going to be troubles of every kind in verse 8. Now, in Matthew's account of this, uh, this conversation, he tells us that these troubles will be pestilences. In other words, disease. There's going to be an uptick or an upsurge in disease and plagues as the end times approach. Now, I looked up this because I would, uh, I'm curious. I got a kind of a morbid sense of humor anyway, but the number one happened in medieval Europe and they were affect, uh, afflicted by the Black Death. Whole villages were destroyed by that plague and it rates as the number one on the list of the worst plagues in history affecting 30 to 60% of the European population. You know, other plagues have, have swept through cities and nations, leaving millions dead in their wake. Think back to the Spanish influenza outbreak during World War I. 25 million people died with flu in a world without overnight intercontinental air travel. Here's the interesting thing about it is, three times more people died of the flu during World War I than actually died in battle. Just stop and think about the AIDS uh, epidemic. It's estimated that 70% of the people in Africa are HIV positive. Think of SARS. We hear about SARS, uh, uh, bird flu scares. Think of the horrors of uh, viruses like Ebola. COVID-19 rates number five on the list of uh, of the worst plagues in history, with an estimated 32 million deaths and growing. Here's the deal. There are killer diseases out there just waiting 
for an opportunity to devastate the human race. An outbreak of, of deadly disease in our world has the potential to kill hundreds of millions of people in just a few short weeks. An outbreak like that would, would shut down society as we know it. But again, Jesus says, hey look, don't let that th- uh, kind of thing fill us with fear. Jesus said that we're going to see diseases and pestilence and, and trouble of every kind increase as the end approaches. And you, you look at this and just reading these couple verses took and raised the hair on the back of my neck and he says, don't worry. But, but here at the end, he gives us a sobering promise. He says, these are the beginnings of sorrows. See, after telling his, his men some of the things that will cause people to believe the end is near, Jesus lets them know that they can't really know when the end's going to come. Jesus tells them that when they see these things, they are just the beginning of sorrows. And these men were looking for signs, and, and what Jesus gave them here were not signs at all. They were non-signs. And, and that phrase, the beginning, uh, 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 beginning of sorrows, means the beginning of birth pangs. Now, nearly every woman here that, who has given birth would tell us that when those first contractions strike, they're just an indicator of a long, hard time ahead. See, Jesus wants His people to know that He's coming. He's in the midst of us. He knows that these, there's hard times ahead. And, and He wants us to know that He's coming. And that was His promise while He was here. Look, uh, look at John 14.1. Jesus told His disciples, He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. This was the promise that of the angels when he ascended to heaven. Acts chapter 1. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was, Jesus was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. There's the promise of the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And Paul ends it with say, uh, by saying, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. He's given us these, these promises. But He doesn't want us to get caught up in speculating when that day is going to be. The Lord wants His people to live their lives in the following manner. Don't, catch, uh, don't miss these next two uh, sentences. He wants us to live in the follow, uh, following manner. He wants us to work like He's never coming. He wants us to live like He might come at any second. We're not to be caught up in guessing about when the Lord might or might not appear. We're not to be looking for signs. We're to be looking for the Savior. 
See, if you're not a believer today, the, the things that Jesus mentioned, it ought to serve as a wake-up call for you. Fact is, Jesus is coming. And the world is going to go into a time of terrible tribulation. And shooting straight, billions are going to die due to war and due to disease and due to starvation and other terrible plagues. And the only way to miss that horrible time is to be ready when the Lord Jesus returns for His people. And i got to ask, are you ready for Him to come? Are you ready to face death? You've been saved by the grace of God? Jesus is coming. And things are going likely to get tough for His people before He does. But let's not be deceived by the signs of the times. Let's determine in our hearts that we're going to obey His Word and live for Him until He comes for us either in the rapture or in the departure we call death. So, as we go into this time of invitation, if you want to talk to the Lord about you, walk with Him, you can do it right there. You can come up here. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I challenge you before you leave, talk to us about those classes today. It's not about when Jesus is coming. It's about the fact that He is coming. It's really, uh, it's really important if you're not sure that you're saved to deal with that. There is nothing more important. How many, how many of all these troubles and of all the different things that are going, how many people are going to die over that? Well, the answer to that is every one of us. We're all going to die. Why are we going to die? Because we're sinners. The consequences of our sin bring forth death. And that's the future for every one of us. You're either going to die and go to be with the Lord, or you're going to die and you're going to spend eternity without Him. It's not a, it's not a matter of, of opinion. We can have all our opinions about when Jesus is going to come. They don't mean a thing. He's coming. If you're a real Christian, which, by the way, most people who say they are are not, and many who think they are are not. That's a fact. It's in the Bible. And I've been watching it happen and seeing the evidence of it for many decades now. And I've seen a lot of people who thought they were become one for real. It's, uh, I can't see your heart. But I can show you in the Bible how to make sure you are. The Word of God handles that. Thanks for fixing my mic, guys. Appreciate it. Those of you who really are saved, what, what are you doing? This scripture came to mind while I'm listening to Brother Ray share so many facts and figures and evidence. 
It's, it's about global warming, actually. Global warming is real. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. This is Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And here's the part that's important that you know. You can speculate. You might even guess the day the Lord's going to come. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got 365 chances of every year that this would be the day. But here's what you need to remember for sure. But the day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night, that means you're not going to predict it. And here's the global warming, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And that's global. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then, you say you're a Christian? Yes? Well, if that's true, here's what you need to be thinking about. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, and that's not talking about organizations going away. It's talking about melted, dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What and who are you living your life for? If it's all about you, you've missed the mark. If all your plans are based on your needs and your wants and your desires and how you're going to accomplish this and how you're going to pay for that, and if, if that's all you're living for, you've missed the mark. You cannot afford to live for the days in this world. Your purpose, your calling, your reason for being created in the first place it's all about what's coming after the day of the Lord. And it's coming. And yes, we're all going to wish we'd done more for Jesus when that day comes. Yeah, we will. I know I will. But we've got more important things to do than live for our own selfish desires. We do. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about the Lord. And he owns us twice. Once by virtue of creation and secondly, he bought us back from our sin with his own blood. That's what a Christian is. You've been twice paid for and bought and we are his. And we don't have any right or any business living our lives all about us. This has got to be about what's coming after or we're wasting it. How many of you adults look back at your younger years and realize how much of it you just wasted? Yeah. I'm one of those. What's it, what do you think it's going to be like when you face Jesus and you look back on all of it and realize how much you just wasted. And you don't have to. 
Why, why do you think the Lord put this church here? He put us here to make the gospel clear to people. He put us here to be a, a, a beacon of hope, a beacon of light, a beacon of truth where we could see people saved continually to keep it going. Keep people coming to the Lord and knowing what real Christians know. That's why we're here. I'm getting old. But I'm going to be doing what God put me here to do until the day comes that that I go. What else is there to do? I, I, I can't... I can't help but remember what Peter said. You know, Peter, he was always sticking his foot in his mouth every time he turned around. He was always swinging a sword instead of preaching the gospel, cutting people's ear off. Do you remember him? And people were abandoning Jesus by the hundreds at that one point in his ministry. You say, well, how could people do that? I mean, Jesus is here in the flesh. He's real. We're hearing him preach. We see the miracles, all that he's done. And we can't take it. We're out of here. And he turned to Peter, and there were some others with him, and he said, will you also go away? We've been people, we've been watching people run out the back door after claiming to know Jesus. 21 years now for me, I've been watching them leave, and a few stay. I've had my heart broken so many times, it's nothing but a wad of scars now. Literally, almost. It hurts to watch people come and find the truth and then just walk away back to a life that's worth nothing. When you could have a life of serving Jesus right here with us. What are you going to do with the rest of what you got? You're going to just keep going like you've been going? Are you going to keep just living for you like you've been doing? You know you have. Or are you going to turn this thing around? Are you going to set some new priorities? What, what's the Bible say this church is? It's the body of Christ. How many of you have realized and finally figured out that what you do with your church is what you're doing with Jesus? Your attitude toward your church and your service toward your church and your commitment to your church. It's not just your church. It's the body of Christ. It's Jesus. And I have learned that he takes it very personally. He does. I'm not going to preach another sermon. I'm going to quit right now. But what manner of persons ought we to be in light of what's coming? That's the question the Bible asks. What kind of people should we be? Let's stand. Jesus paid it all. He did.